John 17 together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me, who you have gave me out of the world, out of the worlds. Yours they were, and you have gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be filled fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus prays to the Father. The Upper Room Discourse, this is the conclusion of it, because after this, comes what Jesus prayed, the end. Or maybe in the, maybe just the beginning. Right, he's saying goodbye, he's focusing 
upon his disciples, specifically right, teaching them, praying for them, as we've seen here, that they may go into the worlds and glorify the Father. Last week, Jesus' charge to us, charge to his disciples, is a charge of joy. He sends the Spirit to convict the world of sin. Jesus offers salvation, and the Spirit points people to him so that he might be glorified. And then the Spirit assures us that we are children of the Father, and the Father welcomes us home, even though we have sinned, even though we have strayed far from him like the prodigal son. The Father welcomes us home with open arms. Do not be afraid that the Father loves you. When the Spirit comes, and it has come, He has come, you will know the joy of being loved by the Father. Now there's a John 17, as Jesus transitions out of teaching to praying, the tone changes. It gets a little darker. The turning point, somewhat ominous. The first phrase of his prayer, the Father, the hour has come. Now you might assume that the disciples were confused. They often were confused. Confused by what Jesus said, confused by what is about to happen, confused that Jesus speaks of his death, but what does that mean for his ministry? Who is this other helper coming? These words are chilling because Jesus knows that he is going to be denied. He knows, looking back, about the betrayal. He knows he's about to be arrested, tortured, whipped, tried, convicted, shame put upon him. And the hour has come. I mean, put yourself in that situation. Imagine that you know what is to come like that. How do you prepare yourself? How do you prepare your disciples for what is about to come? How does he get them ready? And he knows that they don't quite understand. He prays. He teaches them one last time through prayer how to prepare, how to ready oneself for what is about to come. Goes from washing their he goes from washing their feet. I love you and I serve you, and you must serve one another. He tells them, don't let your heart be troubled. In John 14 and John 15, abide in me and I abide in you. John 16, what's about to come you cannot do without the Spirit's help. I'm sending the Spirit. He's yours. He's going to empower you to do what comes next, even though you don't know what's coming next. Even though you can't imagine what is about to come next. The Spirit is going to help you do the impossible. So in this high priestly prayer, this upper room discourse prayer, that's concluding all of this, we see three main sections. We see Jesus offer adoration and glorification. See Jesus lift up his eyes to the heavens 
and prays that he might be glorified and the Father might be glorified through him. Then we see Jesus praying for his disciples. We see Jesus praying for the believers as persecution and sanctification are about to come. And then lastly, we see Jesus pray for unity for his church, for these believers, for these not yet believers that are going to come for the thousands at Pentecost and beyond in the ministry of Paul and Peter and the disciples as they go out and bring this good news to the world. We see Jesus praying for these things. So let's start with glorification, that Jesus prays for glorification. The first ten verses of this prayer are about Jesus praying about glorifying. Nine times you find the words glorify or glory. And he prays that God's glory might be shown to the world, the world that is about to watch what is going to happen. What is going to happen to Jesus? What is going to happen to the disciples? That it's going to be displayed to this world that's watching. People are going to be confused. The world is going to be turned upside down as they see a man they knew was a good teacher, they knew was a rabbi who maybe had done some miracles, that they knew this man was put up on a cross, he was tortured, put up on a cross, pierced through his side, and died, and was buried. And then something happens, right? The stone is rolled back, and this man is alive. This world is going to be confused, and he's praying that whatever happens in these next few days, that in my arrest you might be glorified, in my torture you might be glorified, in my death you might be glorified, and ultimately in my resurrection and ascension you would be glorified, and I would be glorified, and through that you would be glorified. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is praying that when people see him, they would be saved, and through that, he would be glorified, and the Father will glorify him, because the world is going to change in a drastic way. Death and sin are going to be turned upside down because now there's a Savior who can undo the brokenness of this world. It's interesting thinking about what Jesus is praying right here and what it means for us, what it means for the church. Because we see Jesus pray that he would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified through him because the world will see that glory. People would come to Christ. They would be saved through that glory. That really makes you think about what the mission of the church is, what the purpose of the church is, how who we are, what does it mean for us, how we act, as the church together, what we do, how it worships, 
Right? Does the church reflect this? Now you can think about your local church, our local church. There are ways that we might glorify the Son. You can think about the, the broad American evangelical church. Is that the mission of the church? Is this how we see the purpose of what worship is on Sunday morning when we gather together? as believers, is to glorify the Son so that people, through our worship, through how we talk about Jesus, through how we act and how we worship, through that, people might come to know Him. Now, we might need our own self-reflection. When you look at the, the state of the church in America, I don't think this is the purpose of the church. We need some self-reflection on what the church is and how it worships. There's actually an interesting documentary uh, coming out um, called Spirit and Truth. uh, about, And the whole documentary is about worship in America. There's actually another documentary, it might be free on Amazon, called The American Gospel. I think, and it goes through kind of how the gospel has been distorted. Um, so there's just, I don't know, just keep an eye out for those. You might want to uh, take a look at them. But the idea in spirit and truth is that we've lost what it means to give glory to God in our worship, in our churches. So in this, I think one of the applications in this prayer, in this beginning, is how do we, as the body of Christ, as Trinity Grace Church here in Suffield, Worship. How do we give glory to God? Are we drawing people with the glory of God? The way that we talk about God, the way they talk about, we talk about grace, about salvation, about Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished. Do we in such a way talk about that that is the draw? Or is the draw a gimmick, gimmicks? Is it glory or is it gimmicks? Just some self-reflection for us as we think about these things. And Jesus continues and he prays for believers. He prays for believers both already and not yet. He prays that we would be protected in the difficult times to come and that we would be sanctified in the times to come, that we would be made more like him. And that's the next section of this prayer, that Jesus prays for the protection of believers and the sanctification of believers. And he prays for the protection because he knows what's ahead. He knows what is coming after the resurrection. That people aren't going to like what they see. They're not going to like what they hear. They're not going to like that this true and new way of seeing God and worshiping him, this way that's been revealed, has been being revealed through the prophets and through the priests and through the kings of Israel, through the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, that there's this new covenant now. And that's going to upend the religious world and the religious order. People in power, politicians, priests, kings, are not going to like what they hear and what they see through this new way, this true way. So it's going to cause persecution. right? The, the Jewish people, it's upending their religion. They don't like it talk about this new king, it's upending the political system in a sense, 
because the people, the kings don't know what's going on. They think Jesus wants to be king. He thinks this new way wants to overthrow them and start a new state, a new country, a new kingdom. You're going to be hunted down and killed. And Jesus prays for these believers. He talks about the protection that he knows we need. He prays over believers for protection from the world, protection from the evil one. In verse 14, he says, you will be hated if you're united with me. If you are connected with me, the world will hate you. That phrase makes us stop and ponder and wonder about the church again. Why aren't we hated? Or are we? If Jesus says the world will hate you, and there aren't people that hate us, we wonder why. You will be hated if you are in union with me. If you belong to me, the world will hate you because you don't belong to it. Now maybe you felt some of that. Maybe you've experienced some of that hatred from the world. It can manifest in different ways, and we'll get to that in a minute. But he says, in contrast to the world's hatred, he says, my joy will be yours and it will be fulfilled in you. You're not just going to know joy. We spoke about last week. The joy of opening a a present on your birthday or or joy of getting something new, but you're going to know full and lasting joy. The joy of God. John Piper says, he says, the happy God, the joyful God, a God who is eternally joyful, he says. This joy, while you're hated, is going to be fulfilled and made perfect in your experience. The church all over the world is hated, and hated in different ways. I mean, just this week I saw another story about the church in Africa. Hundreds killed because the world hates them. Because they because of who they believe and who they worship. Now you might experience some hatred here. And some, right, we're not being hunted down. This isn't like first century Rome. This isn't like 21st century Africa or China here in America. But persecution takes different forms. If we hold fast to the word of God, if we hold fast to the exclusivity of Christ, if we hold fast to the atonement of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, if we hold fast to biblical ethics, Morality, we will soon be hated if not already. So Jesus prays for us. He prays that as the world hates us, we might know the joy of being united to Him, and the joy of having a Heavenly Father who cares and loves us even while we were sinners. So Jesus prays for believers for protection, and he prays for believers for 
sanctification. He uses the word sanctify three times for his family, for believers. He actually uses it about himself. And you think when Jesus prays, he prays, make me more perfect. God, I want to be made more holy. I, Jesus, want to be. But he's already perfectly holy. He is holiness. He's praying to be set apart from everything that is unholy and being put aside for the purpose he has been sent for by God. He says, this is what I'm asking you. Set me aside for the purposes in which you sent me for. I was made lower than the angels for a specific purpose. God, sanctify me. Set me apart. The hour has come. Let this be complete. And then sanctify them in the truth, because your word is truth. Right? These, we are set apart ones. We don't often like to be talked about like as saints, right? But there's some language that people use, right? We are simultaneously sinners and saints. Simultaneously justified and yet still sinners until we have been brought up to heaven and, and, be ma- and been made glorified. It says, pour over them, sanctify them, set them apart, make them more holy by your word, because your word is truth. God's word changes us as we read it, as we study it. It changes us, it sets us apart, equips us and fuels us and drives us for what's to come, for the purpose in which we've been set apart. Just like as Christ has been set apart, we have been set apart for purposes, for good works before the foundation of this world. So Jesus prays for protection for us. He prays that he might be glorified and he prays for our sanctification, that we would be made ready for what is to come. And lastly, Hold on, I'm going to wait on that for a second. I was just thinking about something. Um, There was um, kind of a big hubbub this week about, um, in the the world of American celebrity evangelicalism. Um, So I don't know, maybe you don't know this name, but um, it it stuck out to me because I was in high school when he wrote his, his first book, but... Uh, Joshua Harris. Um, he was uh, a very young man when he was um, asked to come and be pastor of this very large church in uh, the Baltimore, I think, in the Baltimore area. And in uh, high school, he wrote a book um, called um, "I Kiss Dating Goodbye." Very popular. I remember one of my friends reading. I never read it, but I remember one of my friends reading it, and um, the idea of of getting rid of the the way the world dates and sees dating and sees relationships between 
men and women and like pursue courtship. And then he quickly followed another book uh, with another book. Uh, Basically, he gave up not dating and then found his wife. And so the next book was called, like, I think, When Boy Meets Girl or something like that and about his courtship with his wife. Anyway, um, fast forward, a big celebrity evangelical pastor, lots of books, all this stuff. And um, his church started falling apart uh, because of some of the things going on behind the scenes, some very sinful things and not involving him. And so he resigned and went to study um, and go to seminary he never went to uh, and study more. And now um, this week uh, we find out that he has, and this is all public, he has made it public, but that um, his wife, uh, he and his wife are divorcing um, they're separated now, divorcing, and that he has left the, the Christian faith. He has left the Christian faith. Um, and so when you think about stories like that, and I don't want to, and we all know stories of people who aren't celebrities, Christian celebrities. We all know stories of people who are just normal people who have walked in the faith and then have walked away. And so when we think about those stories and we think about what Jesus is praying here for protection, for sanctification, how much more real are these prayers when we see these lives and these people whom we might have held up as someone we look up to or or someone that we might want to emulate or someone that might be a hero in our faith or had played some part in our faith journey, and we see them walk away from the faith. And we realize that the evil one wants to steal, kill, devour, destroy God's people. And so that this prayer that Jesus is praying should become all the more real for us as we pray not only for ourselves, for protection from this world, from the evil one, as we pray for sanctification to be made more pure and set apart by God's word, as we pray for each other, as we gather together, as we pray for our kids and one another's kids to walk in the knowledge and truth of God. And to never, ever walk away. So God, so Jesus prays for these things. He prays for us. He prays for believers. We can pray for Joshua Harris, his wife and kids. We can pray for other people in our lives that we know that have walked away from the faith in very similar situations. We can pray for these people. And Jesus prays, lastly, for the unity of the church. In the end of this chapter, verses 20 to 26, he prays that God will enable us to fulfill the command that he gave back all the way in John chapter 13. After he washed his disciples' feet and after he served them, did for them what none of them was willing to do for the others, he said, I have set before you a new example and new command. As I have loved and served you, so you are to love and serve one another. 
It's not optional. Jesus is praying for that unity, the unity of the church. He's praying for the disciples that that experience that they received from Jesus would become real to them. That the servant nature, the servanthood of Jesus Christ would become real to them and that they would emulate, it would be, become part of their own Christianity, their own experience. That would become part of ours, of yours and mine. That in our life, in our church, that we would glorify Jesus Christ. That we would be protected and sanctified by him. And that we would find unity in Jesus Christ as the church. Now, this is a hard thing, I think, for us to contemplate. Because maybe for you, you've seen disunity in the body of Christ over and over and over again. I know I have. I find it a miracle that I'm still passionate about the church when I've seen churches split over and over and over again about what, looking back on it, seems to be silly and foolish things. And that that might not be your, your experience, but more than likely, if you walk faithfully with Jesus Christ, you're going to see discord and disunity in the body of Christ. And that should make us mourn. It should make us sad. Because we're not striving for and striving after the unity in which Jesus Christ is calling us to. We can pray for those that have walked through some of these things. About church splits, about arguments. And we can pray that even as in our own denomination, the PCA, that we would have unity. We can pray for that, for our denomination, for our church, for our presbytery, as we try to navigate some of these cultural waters in which we live, but, faithful, but faithfully, faithful to the Word of God. So this unity, if we go back a few weeks and remember the union with Christ, the doctrine of the union with Christ, that because of the gospel we are now united to him. You think about that because what happened in the garden, the garden was undone because sin entered the world and that union with Christ, that union with God was broken and separated. And Christ, by the Spirit, by the cross, by the resurrection, by his ascension, has undone the garden, has made union with God, union with Christ possible again. That because of the gospel, we are united with him. That we, remember, are a branch on that tree, on that vine. And all believers are. And we can pray for those believers that seemingly might want to be walking away and that branch is withering. That good pruning might be done to bring fruit again to that branch. Lest it be cut off from the vine. Says the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be one, even as we are one. When we are unified as the body. What's interesting here, they're 
This comes after sanctification. You might think of it as purification. There are kind of two doctrines of the church that go side by side, that the church has been trying to wrestle with and move forward through history. The purity of the church and the unity of the church. Purity and unity. And so those things seem to be sometimes at odds because, well, we want to have exactly perfect right doctrine. And, and often we good Christians can disagree about specific doctrines and still be unified in fellowship with one another. But then there's this weird doctrine that I want to make a big deal about, like the end times. And then we're going to be a church where we only believe this one thing about the end times. And then, then that causes disunity and the church splits. Or maybe we don't want to believe anything about the Bible and have a pure theology. And so it's all about unity. And therefore we're not going to fight for the faith once delivered to the saints about the things that are most important. About Jesus Christ. About that he is God. About Jesus Christ and how he's the only way of of salvation. About Jesus Christ and what his death on the cross means. And so, well, we don't want to fight. We don't want to argue at all. And so we're just unified all the time. And then all these doctrines that are of first importance fall away and don't matter anymore. And so the church must hold fast to both the purity and the unity of the church. And by doing that, we glorify God. R.C. Sproul, in one of his devotionals, writes this about glorifying Christ as the church. Ultimately, the kind of glory of which we speak is derived glory. The church doesn't have its own glory. We're deriving it. We're taking it from, we're being given it from Christ. It's one that is not inherent to humanity, but was stamped on all people originally as part of our being made in God's image. The glory was marred in the fall by sin and it's been restored to its fullness in those who are united with Christ by faith alone. Think about that. Even when we find the value in all people because they were made in the image of God, there's, there's something about that where when they are living rightly in their bodies, they're giving glory to God. Now, they're uni- not united with Christ. But by using their bodies and the image that they've been given, they're giving glory to God. The church then can be called the glory of God in the sense that God is renewing our image by sharing with us the glory he has given to Christ. As the body of Christ, we've been given that. As the church church fulfills its mission, unbelievers can look at the church and say, God is at work there. Again, back to the beginning about the church doing what it's supposed to do. And when it does what it's supposed to do, it gives glory to God. People can look at it and say, God is at work there. The church reflects the divine glory. And as we grow in Christ-likeness, we point others to God, the source of all glory. This must be at least part of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5.14. When he calls us the light of the world, as we love one another and enjoy God's presence in our midst, our light shines before others and they are directed to the Lord in heaven. When the church is the church and does what the church is supposed to do, it gives glory to God. 
I did. I should have titled this Glory, Not Gimmicks. That's what I feel like it keeps coming around to. Glory, not gimmicks. We can pray as Jesus prayed. We can pray, Father, glorify Jesus as we go about being the church. Right? Protect us, sanctify us, unify us, purify us so that we might glorify you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us, the church, give glory to you. We pray in your name. Amen.